Hi, I'm Brady Huggett, the Enterprise Editor at Spectrum. Recently, a paper was published in the journal Child and Adolescent Mental Health. The paper was written by Jonathan Green, a researcher and clinician at the University of Manchester, at Royal Manchester Children's Hospital, and Manchester Academic Health Science Centre, all in Manchester, UK. The article is titled Debate, Neurodiversity, Autism, and Healthcare. There have since been a few commentaries in response to Jonathan's article, and it has generated some online chatter, which is not unusual around these topics. So we wanted to talk with Jonathan about this paper, why he wrote it, what its key themes are, and also discuss the early reaction to it. That's what I've done. That's the focus of this interview. We talked on August 3rd, 2023, morning for me and and mid-afternoon for Jonathan in Manchester. And before we get going, I'll say that if you're listening to this on a podcast app, on spectrumnews.org, the posting for this interview includes links to some of the papers that Jonathan and I discuss. So that's all you need to know. We'll start here, where I'm asking Jonathan how this paper came about. All right. So, Jonathan, I think the first thing that we should talk about is your impetus for writing this paper. What were you thinking about and uh, how did you come up with this topic? Yeah. Um, thanks, Brady. Um, I think the uh, the occasion of writing the paper really came from the current uh, very fluid, contentious and often really difficult situation for clinicians uh, with the current status of autism, debates around neurodiversity, etc. I was asked to write the paper, actually, after I delivered a lecture about the history of autism, history of the autism concept, and how I thought it had altered over time, and uh, what I thought the current, uh, what I called a paradigm shift, uh, real, real turning, pivoting points now were, and, and they asked me to write this, uh, this contribution after that. I've worked as a clinician in this field for 30 years or so, and as also a clinical scientist, and I just know the complexity for uh, clinicians in this field at the moment and the pressures they're under. So this was partly to to help them. Can I ask, you You said you were asked to write the paper. That's by the journal. The journal asked you to write the paper? Uh, yeah, in essence. Yeah. 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 Okay. And I was going to ask, too, who, who you thought the audience was, and it's for clinicians. I mean, really, you're trying to lay forth some new thoughts for clinicians here. Yeah, I've... That that's that is the case, uh, Brady. I um I have written some other papers on this topic recent in the last couple of years, which have really been addressed as much or more to the uh, broad scientific uh, uh, professional audience, um, and also to the neurodiversity community. And of course, in this modern uh, media age, you know, the, I, I'm totally aware that what I wrote in this paper, although I had clinicians in mind, um, of course, other people will read it and they have and they've commented. So, uh, you know, that's that's just normal these days. So you, I think most recently you, you wrote on this topic in October of 2022. Yeah, I wrote a, a paper called Autism as um, Emergent and Transactional, um, which it is it was a theory paper that really folds into this and perhaps it would be useful just to explain the origin of these ideas um which really lay lay behind the the argument in the paper so earlier in my uh, career i 
my my first uh, area of uh, research, developmental research, actually was in individual different psychology, and particularly in temperamental variation in newborns and uh, early infancy and its consequence. Uh, so I was um, very much involved in the the notion of individual difference and its consequences in development, and within that. The study of temperament historically, uh, I think, was a very interesting paradigm where the downstream consequences of early individual difference, which was largely assumed to be genetic in origin, was tr uh, plotted in longitudinal studies. And this notion uh, arose of the so-called transactional relationship between individual difference in development and the world around the individual. So I was imbued in that and in the sort of intervention research that was done early on, which showed that actually with the right kind of intervention early on, one could actually mitigate the downstream effects of early difference and improve uh, downstream outcomes, but within this transactional context. So long story short, around 2000, at the turn of the century, um, I began with colleagues to apply this idea to autism as a developmental difference. And basically we showed in these programs really quite strikingly that actually you could alter the transactional dynamics early on with autistic difference. And actually uh, more strikingly than that, because that had, that's pretty common knowledge in a lot of intervention procedures, but that actually this, this altered and improved downstream autism uh, phenotype. So this was not done with high functioning autism. This was done with kids who were largely uh, minimally, well, uh, or uh, didn't have phrase speech and had reduced IQ. This underlay the paper I, I wrote in last year on uh, autism as emergent and transactional. And you can see how the logic came from that. That's, that's that's the second bit. And the third bit that underlies this paper is my engagement with the neurodiversity community and autism advocates over the last five, six, seven years, which has been quite intensive. And I've really engaged them uh, quite deeply in phenomenological work and uh, thinking about their own experience and understanding the, the neurodiversity community and advocacy movements. And all of those three things together then led me to the kind of position that um, I'm talking about in the in the paper here. And so it's OK. Those are the roots. And you sort of applied this to our current moment, if you will. And I think early in the paper, you said that there is a receding horizon for the scientific goals around autism, which I thought was a really interesting way to say. It. Can you sort of expand on what you mean by that idea that this is a receding horizon? That was that was put sort of purposefully like that. To just, I think, um, I mean, one anecdote to to exemplify it. When I first worked in autism seriously in the 90s, uh, I was part of the first large uh, international autism genetics consortium, which was looking at molecular genetics and, and at a big population level and big data. And we started out, I mean, I was junior in the in the consortium, but uh, which was led by Michael Rutter at that time. But you know, I realized that it started out with basically a modeling that there would be probably six genes of main effect that would actually 
determine autism. That's where it was at the time, around 1995, right? And what I've seen in that consortium, and we've seen over the over the time, of course, is that that wasn't the case. That we've now got maybe a thousand genes of, of small effects, CNVs, plus, of course, a, a proportion like 14% or so of of single gene disorders of main effect that are associated with autism. So, but if you look at common familial autism, this is a polygenic condition, and um, so there's a, a receding horizon on the genetic silver bullet, right, which is what we started with. There's also receding horizon on um, biomarker identification, not only at genetic, but at a neuroscience level. So I've been involved in a lot of the early baby SIBs projects in terms of early neurodevelopmental studies. Bottom line, we haven't got a, a simple um, uh, early marker, predictive marker for, for autism in that sense. Either. So that's what I mean by a receding horizon, Brady. Um, and the idea that, uh, you know, which some uh, people misunderstand that a lot of genetic research basically implies eugenics is, is kind of scientifically nonsensical. We'll never find a, a gene um, marker, a prenatal gene marker that would enable that. Yeah. So that led you to write, I think that you called it in right now, we are, there's an unparalleled flux in our understanding of autism, right? Yeah. And, and as you said, 1994, everyone sort of thought they, they we would figure it out. It'd be very simple. That's been not the case at all. And now we're sort of in this area where um, it's not clear what might be known or what even isn't known yet. And that, I think, is what led you to sort of say, now we need to think about treatment differently. That's true. I mean, I don't want to under underestimate uh, and under respect the huge science work that's gone on and the amount we've learned from it. But I think what we've, oh, sure. learned, what we've learned is complexity. And, yes. uh, you know, yeah. we need to take a different paradigm view. And uh, the other aspect of the paradigm shift is, is like what we what we mean by autism. I mean, one of the sections in my paper was what is autism anyway? <laughs> and, you know, and that's come under a lot of debate. And I do think that the advocacy movement has brought into play for us in the clinical science community vividly the lived experience of autism and that and the importance of that in our consideration. Okay, so if we have this idea that autism now is uh, emergent and transactional, and that's going to lead hopefully to a new way to treat aspects of autism, I suppose, take me through how that works and sort of what's needed to be uniformly believed or not maybe not uniformly collectively believed in order for that to work and you, you've laid out three or four things that need to happen yeah i mean what i suggest is is that we need to have a more of a shared understanding that all, what we call autism is rather a dynamic entity you know when i first started in the field there was this like quite preformist idea really that autism was a neurological uh, disorder uh, that it emerged over time as sort of biological emergence, um, and uh, it was nothing you could do about it. Certainly in the UK, it was total therapeutic nihilism that you could do anything about this unfolding, right? Um, and I think we we do need to change that. I think the work I've done in in our therapy program and other people too have shown that no, this there is you know within limits there is uh, work that one can do on the environmental aspects around autism that can really ch substantially change things. So I think we need to do that. And, um, you know, I think we need to seriously realize that we can actually invest in really good early environmental adaptations right from the get go that could make at least some difference to the evolution of the phenotype. 
and I've, I've suggested in the paper that um, we really need to recast our intervention model to be much more proactive, more um, preventative in orientation, uh, rather than reactive and firefighting, uh, which is so much of what goes on at the moment. Uh, but there's also the need, and this is another aspect of the paper, uh, we need to uh, avoid culture wars around, um, you know, uh, fighting about what autism is, and um, which is a really unfortunate aspect at the moment. And and so I wanted to try and create a kind of shared language uh, model that w that would be at least reasonably acceptable to um, both the um, the neurodiversity community and also to the uh, community of um, adults and parents whose uh, who children and adults who have major disability, you know, and no one is underestimating, certainly not me, since I've worked with them for 30 years, underestimating uh, the, the importance of that and the need. So uh, this, the idea that, you know, that intervention is, is, is inappropriate is, is not compatible with clinical experience. And there's, so there are real dilemmas here that we have to really uh, talk about together. Yeah. So the the idea basically in this, you know, as you said, we're in this unparalleled flux of our understanding is to maybe make a shift from, hey, we're looking for these genes so that we can affect these genes to autism is emergent. How do we change the environment so that this autistic person, this autistic young child flourishes so that their outcome is improved? Yeah. That, in, a, in a nutshell, that is exactly the paradigm. And it, 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 its orientation is, is to um, accept and value the difference, but to try and optimize the outcomes as much as one possibly can. And what we can do in healthcare, I think, is this early intervention piece. But of course, it links with societal change, uh, with change in the workplace and all sorts of other things that are beyond and in education that are beyond healthcare to actually within the same model of accommodation to improve flourishing and outcomes. You just you, you just mentioned, and you mentioned this in the paper, that there's been this sort of fracturing of the landscape. The neurodiversity movement has brought like a, just a ton of attention to things that were not being looked at before, honestly. And that, and that has bumped up against the medical community, which is sort of looking at autism as this medical condition, right? This is the social model versus the medical model that you, you alluded to before. And you're hoping the paper might sort of help stop the fracturing. Do you think it's been able to do that? I know it's early days, of course. The paper's not even out in print yet. But what is your thoughts about this after having been out for a while? Uh, well, I, <laughs> obviously, the paper in itself won't do it. But um, <clears throat> I think that I am committed to a, a common language. I think, as I and I wrote about this a bit more extensively in the the two thousand the two thousand twenty two paper on uh, emergence and transaction, that you know we have part of the whole remit of clinical science has been to integrate the basic biology, basic science, clinical practice, and and social understanding. You, you know to have a unified view. Is, is so powerful. And um, so how are we going to do that? Well, we do need a model. And that's what I'm trying to present here. We do need a model of thinking. But then, of course, we need um, dialogue and we need engagement with each other. And uh, I try and do as much of that as I can myself and others are also doing it. And they'll need to be give on both sides. That's obvious uh, because there is a, a lot of incompatibility. 
you know, one thing I, I don't want my model to, to underplay is the, um, the disability aspects of a lot of autism and or to overplay how much treatment can do. I think it can do a lot. And we've shown this empirically what it can do, but it, it's not a magic cure. And I think from the other side, there's, there's too much defensiveness about the, the felt threat from neurodiversity language, um, the social model and uh, advocacy community. And, uh, and it's it sort of, uh, I mean, there are, def there, there are trigger areas around which this revolves, of course. I mean, one is the notion that um, any intervention or treatment is uh is basically destroying autism or under or, or trying to wipe it out uh that sort of eugenics narrative which is you know a, a tough one and um when i'm in the room with autistic advocates and uh we can really talk this through i i think and hope that there's a, there can be a bit of mutual understanding here and i hope that the kind of treatment model i'm proposing is more acceptable because this is not about changing or wiping out autism it is about uh, supporting it you know that's the argument we've made and i think generally that's been understood and supported by yeah. many yeah so let, let me let me ask about that because i think i think when you tell me what what feedback you've gotten on this paper already but i think the idea would be for a neurodiverse advocate if they if they read this paper they would say what they're doing is trying to lessen autistic traits and therefore make me less autistic and that is what they're fighting against well yeah this is this is a complex very nuanced um uh, argument here i mean it's 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 so interesting because it comes up against autism identity so there's a social identity model and argument but a lot of it gets tied to this behavioral phenotype definition diagnosis now this is a complex argument because if people then say well no you're then you're taking away my autism identity what i say is no i'm not i'm, I'm really not doing that but the the nature of autism development is like all our developments all our identity develops in over time you know none of it's preformed none of us have a preformed identity and i don't believe autism identity is preformed either um, you know, and so one has to to take this developmental argument. But of course, in the social space, autism identity is a binary and it's a valued identity. And so that is a very real, a very real dialogue and challenge, a mutual challenge, I, I'd say. But from a, I think what I'd be saying, and the and this is where I think the phenomenology is important, is that we actually think from the phenomenology work that we've done that the, the core neurodivergent phenotype may lie slightly be behind what the behavioral phenotype currently tells us. So that if you listen to autistic people and their experience, actually their experience doesn't really map onto the DSM category. <laughs> you know, their, their experience is of an overwhelming world, a huge sensitivity, which often has great benefits as well as difficulties associated with it, an attentional style, which is highly focused at times and then uh, feels pretty uh, chaotic at other times, but again has some very 
a powerful strength to it. And all of this, of course, is from the uh, verbal advocacy. And this is often what's criticized about it. It's not representative, but it, it's a very important group. And these people can tell us what it feels like to be autistic. And what they tell us doesn't map onto DSM very well. We may want to alter the phenotype a bit, which may in turn alter what people think of as the autistic identity. And it's not the same as the ADOS thing that we measure and that we change. Because what I'm arguing is that what we are changing is downstream effects, which is not quite, which is slightly different. So it's a, it's a subtle argument, but I hope that's clear. And one other thing I want to say is that intellectual disability associated with autism is another big issue here. So that for children who are non and, and adults who are non-communicative, who have non-speaking, um, who who are really cognitively delayed and autistic, what's their lived experience? Is that a very different kind of thing? And a lot of the time we just don't know that because we haven't been creative enough in being able to access their experience. And I think that is a an area that we're going to need to really look at. I wanted to ask a thing, too, because you mentioned in the paper, you actually mentioned that you'd worked on another paper with three autistic colleagues of yours, and you sort of went back over your earlier lives, and you realized there were some similarities in the way that um, you developed versus the way they developed, and also some differences. But on this on this paper, you're the only author, but did you run this past some of those same colleagues? Uh, yes, yes. The... Um, uh, uh, these ideas have been... Uh, talked about with them. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that they would agree with everything I've written here, but they are familiar with these uh, with the model that I've put forward. And um, I think I've learned a lot from them, which has also illuminated the, the model. So uh, Joe Bavertz, who I uh, reference in the article, is one of those colleagues that I wrote that paper with. So uh, I'm not I'm not claiming they'd sign up to this, but um, you know, that I, I hope that this is something, my informal feedback is that this is uh, something that's, at least to, to some of those colleagues, is, is an acceptable kind of way of framing the thing, yeah. Yeah, a couple of things I want to ask you and then we're done. But one is, what feedback have you seen? Again, it's not out in print, but it is online. And as you said, it has been disseminated widely. What feedback have you seen? I mean, I have some, I have seen people online saying things like, this is eugenics, as you mentioned, right? Um, what what feedback have you gotten? Uh, well, there are there are a couple of um, published commentaries on the paper. So the the journal uh, commissioned uh, actually three commentaries, I, but two are two are in at the moment, um, and so they're available. So you can see those. One is from a, an autistic uh, advocate, uh, academic, and the other from a clinical science uh, colleague. Um, so there you'll see there. I mean the, the the um if i distilled it down the 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 feedback from the clinical science colleague is largely um i i would say supportive of the model uh the the autistic uh, advocate uh colleague particularly focused on a, a lack of um in this what in my paper on a lack of attention to autistic identity and i think she's right to do that i don't think i have talked about that uh, very much. Uh, partly it's because I don't feel really qualified to do so. 
she makes some points that you know that that there's not enough attention to that and i you know i do accept that that is a a legitimate area where we have to really wrestle and discuss together about those things because there are some paradoxes in there otherwise um online yeah there's been uh, some of the sort of twitter commentary around eugenics which is uh, you know i think is a bit um it's like any anything that in that that suggests intervention in, at this current time can provoke that uh, kind of feedback and i hope i've tried really tried hard to um to explain why i think that this the kind of intervention certainly that we are talking about here um its its aim is to is to validate and to support a neurodiversity rather than uh, get rid of it um yeah so yeah. uh you know you do what you, one does one's best with that yeah so just the final question you know this this paper mentions neurodiversity throughout and the word has i mean grown exponentially since it was first coined and i think that almost that everybody has their own definition of what that word means and i'm wondering how you would define neurodiversity um yeah so i i don't think i would want to um hazard an overall definition because as you say this is a term that has been used so differently by different people. I mean, of course, it it began as a a term of assertion, really, of the importance of um, you know neurological differences, um, and it it came from the you know neurodiversity community um, uh, as a as a, an idea. And I think it really applies to the idea that there is a range of brain difference. Uh, and I suppose what what is um, controversial about it or, or radical about it is how wide you take that net. You know, we, we could, uh, you know, think about um, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia. You know, these things are all very... Uh, you, you know, and they're not really pathologized, as it were, really within the developmental science. And then you then you can think about ADHD, uh, another neurodevelopmental condition that is, as it were, quotes, pathologized, intellectual disability, Tourette's syndrome, anorexia, schizotypy. Uh, so it's a, how broad you, you embrace the differences here. So that's an important thing is like there's a range of, as it were, normative variation and it's how broad and i think the neurodiversity community would often want to argue for a very broad definition of 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 this so uh and then of course there's the idea that that the concurrent with that is the the fact that the people should have equal social rights um and uh, uh so there's a sort of a social activism um you know, I think that then if you are, okay, so how do I respond? Well, basically, the idea is, in essence, intuitive to me from, as I said, I started off with the idea of individual difference um, uh, research. And a lot of this is just a reframing of that. Uh, you know, we know a lot of the genetics research has suggested there are a lot of common genetics uh, between these different conditions. I'm personally 
more of a splitter than a lumper. So I like to keep these these individual conditions, I think, have very particular characteristics and I don't want to lump them all together into one thing. But there's they, there's there is clearly a family of neuro neuro difference. <laughs> so, yeah, I think um, neurodiversity is quite an interesting concept, both scientifically in terms of shared genetics. Um, you know, you're maybe uh, familiar with the essence uh, model of uh, Chris Gilberg, which he's talked for many years about how all these conditions are all somewhat part of a one group. Um, and I've personally not really agree with him, but, you know, it's there that he's argued that for many years. And I don't think there's a big difference between that and a lot of what the advocacy community say from their own lived experience perspective, to be honest. And I think we can learn a lot from each other about that. Uh, that was a, one of the longest definitions of neurodiversity I've ever heard, but, but a complex <laughs> one. I like it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that's, that's all I had, Jonathan. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk about your paper and uh, okay. good luck with it. Thank you. Thank you.